so I'm excited to see you all back tonight. And this evening, we are getting into a message that is what I would consider to be one of the contemplative passages in Scripture. There are some passages that you get into that there's a lot of application. You immediately allow the truths to sink in, and it speaks to what you're walking through, and you get a chance to begin to live those truths out. This is one of those thinking passages. This is a pondering passage. This is a contemplation package. This is one in which when we get into the text, you're going to find that the more you understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about, the more you appreciate the gospel. The more you appreciate the gospel, the deeper and deeper you fall in love with the Jesus who saved you. There's a lot that we get a chance to walk through tonight. So I want to set it up along this thinking path. So here's my first statement. I believe it's going to be in your notes. But here's the statement. Your process for making decisions has a lot to do with the quality of the choices that are made. Let me say that again. Your process for making decisions has a lot to do with the quality of the choices that are made. Now let's unpack that just a little bit. Unclear thinking leads to unstable choices. If you have not fully thought through the particular situation, that is considering the options and the impact to others and the possible outcomes, you will be much less convinced of the choice that you've made. You walk into it tentatively because you're, you're still thinking in that moment, have, have I looked at it from all of the angles? Do I understand what is at stake? How is it going to impact others? So let's pull this out a little bit more. If you make decisions based on gut feelings, what seems right in the moment may cost you dearly in the long run. Here's a thought that as I wrote this down, it's just one that I've just pondered a lot, and that is my feelings change with my circumstances, and my circumstances change without my consent. Let me say that again. My feelings change with my circumstances, and my circumstances change without my consent. So if you're making decisions based on feelings, that can be a very unstable way of making decisions. Or if you make decisions with minimal counsel, you will have minimal understanding. Consulting no one means that you walk into a decision only having your own perspective. Consulting people who only agree with you means that you now have an echo chamber. You're, you're not hearing other things, you're just finding consensus along the way. So your process for making decisions, that is who you talk to and how you process information and whether you respond or whether you react, whether you pray or whether or not you rush into things, your process for making decisions has a lot to do with the quality of the choices that are made. So over the years, I've noticed that a part of my decision-making process is at the very end, I usually write out a pros and a cons list. How many pros and cons list people do we have in the room out there? All right, there's a handful of us out there. God bless you. Everybody else, pay attention. We're going to teach you something here tonight. <laughs> so this is an after piece. 
that is after seeking counsel, after gathering information, after pondering the implications and the results, after praying through things, and many times after myself and Bria talk through things, then the next step that I do is I put a pros and a cons list. I, I write down, here's the pros in this, and here are the issues, here's the cons, here's the possible problematic things that we might run into. There is something about getting the information out of your head and onto a piece of paper in front of you, and you can begin to clearly see, okay, here's where this decision can lead to, or here's where the decision might cause some problems. Now, here's the reason I bring all of that up, all of this thinking stuff from the very beginning. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, after processing a lot of information about justification, the Apostle Paul has now made a very similar list. That is, he puts the blessings of faith in one column, and then he puts the, the curses associated with trying to live up to the standard of the law in another column. And he puts them side by side, and he wants you to look at the two and make a comparison. And by the time he's done, here's what he wants to happen. He wants you to see faith is always better. Say that with me. Faith is always better. Now, this is one of the reasons that this is a thinking but also a very practical message. So many times, believers will say, if God just told me what to do, I would do it. No, you wouldn't. There's all sorts of stuff that's already right in the Word that we don't do. But there's something inside of us that makes us think that if I could control it, it's going to be easier. It's not. But I will tell you this. When we recognize the fact that our salvation, our identity, our position in Christ is made possible only because of what Christ has done, it takes a weight off of our shoulders that we're not having to live up to this standard in order to make ourselves right with God. He has done everything to make us right with him. And there is a freedom that now comes through that. There's an opportunity to enjoy an intimate relationship with God, allowing him to lead our activities, but recognizing our eternal destiny, our identity in Christ, our position in Christ is based on what he has done for us. So today, as we go through this list, we are going to need to remember what the big question is. If you remember the last two weeks, I've said there's three big questions that are being asked in chapter three and also in chapter four. Here's the first of those. How is a person made right with God? That's this big question that is now being answered. This is so important because the question is not, is the law good? That's going to lead you to a different answer. The question is not, did God give us the law? The question is not, does the law have a purpose? The question is, how is a person made right with God? And if we don't understand the question, we can very quickly begin to, I guess, move this passage and contort the passage into saying something that it's not actually saying. Now, we've also talked about this idea that the Apostle Paul is helping us understand that it is not about a works-based righteousness, but rather it is about faith in what Christ has done for us. But I want to be unbelievably clear. The Apostle Paul is not saying that works are unimportant. Works are very important after salvation. His point is, works just don't justify us before God. 
Here's a statement. I think it's also in your notes. Works are manifest in the righteous person, but works do not make a person righteous. That is, once a person has been made righteous before God, works will be manifested. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be God's activity that is being lived through their life. But that is not on the front side. It's not that those things now make a person right with God. It is that they have been made right with God and works are now manifested as a result of that. In the last two weeks, I've given six different reasons why this passage is relevant for every single believer. Here they are very quickly. It equips us to share the gospel more effectively. It draws us back to the gospel. It expands our theological understanding. It emphasizes faith after salvation. It shows us the intent of the law, and it shows how Abraham trusted God with specific promises, hard decisions, prolonged periods of waiting, confusing times, and human impossibilities. Tonight, we're adding three more pieces to that. By the end of this evening, I want you all to recognize this. This passage is relevant also because it takes us off of a path of performance-based Christianity. If that's all you get tonight, that will be worth you showing up for. When you've tried and tried and tried and tried to live up to everything that you're reading in Scripture, and you've failed and failed and failed and failed, and then somebody says, did you know that's not what God's asking of you? All of a sudden you're like, whoa, how did I miss that? This takes us off the path of performance-based Christianity. Number eight, it reminds us of what Christ endured on our behalf. It should be that we walk away in greater awe and wonder of what Jesus has done for us. And number nine, it renews a heart of gratitude before God. Christians should be the most grateful people on the planet. Hands down, without question. If if all we got is eternity with God in heaven. If there were never to be another blessing given on this side of eternity, we've already gotten far more than we ever deserved. But then you think of what he continues to do and how he continues to work and how he continues to move and how he continues to provide. And it should be that believers are just living in a state of gratefulness. This is a passage that reminds us to be grateful. So, that being said, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles again. Galatians chapter number 3. Galatians 3, we're in verses 6 through 14. I am speaking this evening on the subject, faith is better. Faith is better. Here's what it says, verse 6 and following. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. 
However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so, so much truth in this text. And God, we are asking that you would unpack it. We're asking that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that you would reveal what needs to be revealed. And at the same time, God, we're praying that you would live your life through us so that we might walk out the truths, not in our strength, but by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul has taken two and a half chapters to show how the false teachers in Galatia were wrong on a theological level, a practical level, a rational level, a personal level. And then finally, he is exposing their error on a historical level, and he's doing so using one of their heroes, the man by the name of Abraham. So Paul has already shown how faith in Christ is one of those things that justifies faith in what God has done for us. He shows how that justifies and the law does not because the law was not given until 400 years after Abraham and it's already told us that Abraham was justified by faith. We also understand that Paul showed that circumcision could not justify a person because that was given 14 years after scripture says Abraham was justified by faith. Now, the reason both of those are the arguments being pointed out is because both of those are the arguments that the Judaizers were bringing to believers in the church of Galatia, saying that it's not enough to just have faith in Jesus. It is faith in Jesus plus adherence to the Mosaic law, and a part of that adherence to the Mosaic law was the act of circumcision. So the text now is broken down with the pros, that is the blessings of faith found in verses 6 through 9, and now the cons or the curses associated with the works is now found in verses 10 through 14. And Paul's point all the way through is faith is better. So now we need to back up and say, why is it better? Faith is better because, number one, it is the only way that we are reckoned as righteous. This is found in verses 6 and 11. It says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. So verse number 6, it shows what faith can do. Verse number 11 shows what the law cannot do. Faith justifies. The law does not. Now, we've already spent a significant amount of time the last two weeks unpacking this idea of justification by faith. So we're going to leave that part there. And if you've got questions, go back and watch last week and the week before that's message. So let's move on from there. Faith in Christ is better because it makes us true sons of Abraham. This is found in verses 7 through 9. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who were sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
Now, as previously stated, Abraham was a big deal in Judaism. As the patriarch of the faith, he sets the standard. And in this area, he's setting the standard for what it looks like to walk in faith with God. The Jewish people were very proud of their heritage, and many of them were very proud of that relationship with Abraham. They thought that physical descent guaranteed spiritual salvation. Now, John the Baptist was one of the first to warn that is not the case. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus came behind John the Baptist, and he distinguished between Abraham's seed, that is of physical descent, and Abraham's children, that is of spiritual descent. John chapter 8, verses 33 through 47. But even today, there's still people who believe that they will be saved because of some type of family, spiritual, religious heritage. If you were to ask them, why should God let you into heaven? They might say, my grandmother was a Christian lady. Or my dad, or my granddad, or my uncle was a pastor. My parents have been involved in church their whole life. They, they are trying to link their spiritual access to God through somebody else, through a physical descent. It's been said before that God has no grandchildren. Think about that for just a moment. It's not that somebody else cannot lead somebody to faith in Christ, but the point that's being made in that is if you do not have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, you do not have a relationship with God. God's relationships are not once removed. Like, I have a relationship with this person, and that person has a relationship with God. It's either you have a relationship with God or you don't. So in verses 7 through 9, the question becomes, who are the true sons of Abraham? Are the true sons of Abraham those of a physical lineage going back to Abraham? Or are the true sons of Abraham those who also believe God as Abraham believed and have then been justified by faith? Who are the true sons? Now, there's an interesting way that the Apostle Paul unpacks this particular idea. Look at his word choice in verse number 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Is that not a very strange or unique word choice? The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So Paul is using scripture as an extension of divine personality personifying God's word as a way of showing that God's word and God's person cannot be separated. What scripture says is what God says. What God says is what scripture says. One of the most important things within a local church is that the word of God is taught. Not human understanding of the word, but let the word of God be taught. One of the things that I, I love to do is I love verse-by-verse verse teaching through God's Word, and I also love to come out and let's see what does the Word of God have to say about a particular topic. But it's very important that we have both of those types of approaches. There's something about digging into the depths of God's Word that helps us to realize there's no accidents in here. Things that you might think like, God doesn't address that. Start going verse by verse, line by line, precept by precept. And all of a sudden you find out not only did he address it, he addressed it well within the word. 
So when he addresses it, there's no arguing on our side. God's word is a, a direct coming out from God. When you see it in scripture, it's what God has said. What God says is what you find in scripture. Now in verse number eight, it says the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, when exactly was the gospel preached to Abraham? Because as best I understand, like the gospel as we know it today, that's like a 2,000-year piece that we've now stepped into. It's more of a fullness of the gospel that created for relationships and separated the relationship. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, rose from the dead that we might have Christ, have eternal life, and he offers eternal life to those who repent of their sins by following Christ. That, that's the gospel as we understand it. But here, it says the gospel was preached to Abraham. When exactly did that happen? I'll show you two places. First, it was in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when it says, All the nations will be blessed in you. The blessing of the nations points to Christ who would come through Abraham's lineage. That phrase, listen to this phrase, to be blessed means to be the recipient of all the divine love, grace, and mercy that is bestowed on us in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 2 verses 6 through 7. According to what we find in scripture, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And what happened is all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, you find that God is telling Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you. They will find this divine love, this grace, this mercy that is bestowed on those in you. You're going to see that. A second point is also over in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar. There's beautiful parallelism that's happening that foreshadows the coming of Christ, both in his life, in his death, and even in his resurrection. So here's what I mean by that. Isaac was the promised child who was miraculously born. Jesus is the promised child who was miraculously born. Isaac was the only begotten to Abraham. Jesus was the only begotten of the Father. Isaac was willing to die at his father's hand. Jesus was willing to die at his father's hand. Isaac carried the wood on his back for the sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross on his back for the sacrifice. Isaac was to be sacrificed on the mountains of Moriah. Jesus was sacrificed on the mountains of Moriah. Abraham expected the resurrection of Isaac if he died, Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. Jesus predicted his own resurrection when he died, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. A ram was a substitute for Isaac. Jesus was a substitute for us. Now listen to this one. Isaac does not re-enter the biblical timeline until he is introduced to his bride. Jesus will not re-enter our biblical timeline until he's reintroduced to his bride. Do you see the beauty and how they line up side by side? The similarities are strong, but there's still a couple of major points of difference. One of those is that God spared Abraham's son. He did not spare his own. 
The comparison is intended to have us look in awe and in wonder as to what God has done. But it's also intended to draw us back and say, he did this for us. He he sacrificed his son for us. Part of what he did was to make us sons and daughters of Abraham. Faith in Christ is better because it redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse number 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That word redeemed is a word commonly used for buying a slave's freedom. Christ redeemed us from the slave market of sin. He paid our sin debt in full. The verse says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So whenever you see pieces like that in Scripture, and you see like the curse of the law, and you're like, I don't exactly know what that means. Do you know it's good for you to take a few moments and find out what that means? I'm just being honest. Like, if you just keep reading through that, you are going to miss so much of what God has in store for you in the Word. I say all the time, read the Word of God for depth, not distance. Doesn't matter how fast you go if you just skim the surface of all of it. It's better to sink in and sit in the word than it is to rush through everything. So what is the curse of the law? That is one of those phrases that it gives a perspective based upon the the error and the time and the culture in which we live. So here's one of the best ways I know how to explain it and hopefully in the explanation, it'll make some sense to you all as well. You and I are not rewarded in the moment in a personal way instantly for keeping the law but we are condemned immediately when you break the law when I drive the speed limit there's nobody pulling me over giving me a certificate God bless you here's a hundred dollar you know reward for just doing what you're supposed to do there's none of that going on I, I might actually want to drive the speed limit a little bit more if that's the case. But if you break the speed limit, immediately those same laws will condemn you. So the curse of the law, it speaks of the condemnation that comes from breaking it. The text says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? The next phrase tells you. Having become the curse for us. He was condemned for us. He became the curse for us. He took our punishment on himself. Romans 3.23 is so clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all broke God's law. We were all condemned by God's law. We all faced the punishment that came from that condemnation. But what we find in Christ is that he became the curse for us. When he died on the cross, he was not dying to pay the penalty for his sin. He died as a substitute for our sin. He paid our sin debt on the cross. Now just stop there just a moment. If that's all you get tonight, that's enough for you to praise him for eternity for. He paid the sin debt of you and I eternally before God our Father. He did that for us. 
Now, here's my question. This is a beautiful one to contemplate for a moment. When did he become a curse? Did you see it in the text? It says, having become the curse for us. When did that happen? We know it did not happen at the incarnation. You know why? Because Scripture says in Luke 135 that he is called holy as a child and the Son of God. It did not happen between his birth and his adult ministry. Because Scripture says that he advanced in favor with God and man. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. So when exactly did he become the curse for us? Was it during his earthly ministry? Nope. Once again, because it says the Father, Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So when did he become the curse for us? As best we can tell through Scripture, it's on the cross in the second part of his death. That is, his time on the cross, it's broken down into a six-hour segment, three hours and three hours. It's believed it's the second three hours that he became the curse for us. Here's why I would say that. According to what we find, Mark 15, 24 through 26, it tells us that he was crucified at the third hour. That's going to be at 9 a.m. We find that Matthew 27, 45 says, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That is from noon to 3 p.m. The final three hours on the cross, everything goes dark. He's offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, yet he himself was without spot, without blemish. He has now gone to the cross as the perfect lamb, as the perfect substitute, as the holy son of God. It's in the second three hours where theologians believe the wrath of God has now fallen on him and been unleashed in unmagical ways on him. Isaiah 53, 10, it says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Remember that our punishment of sin was eternal separation from God. And it's near the very end of his crucifixion in that end of the three-hour period that you hear him cry out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that time, the full weight of eternity, of humanity's sin, is now being placed on him. He experienced a separation that we deserved from the very one whom he had shared unimaginable, intimate fellowship from eternity past. In this moment, there is now a separation that has happened in a way that only the divine mind can comprehend. There's only two other statements that Jesus says on the cross. He says in John 19.30, it is finished. Also translated, paid in full. Our sin debt, paid in full. His last phrase, Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at that, the creator himself breathes his last breath. And he dies. At that moment, according to Scripture... His body died, but his spirit was not dead. At that moment, the Bible says that the earth 
shook. The mountains shook. At that moment, life enters into the corridors of death. And the Bible tells us that those who were dead and in the tombs came back to life. There is so much life-transforming power in Christ that when he walks in death, others come back to life again. It's in that moment, the Bible says, the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Even the direction speaks of God's enablement. It started at the top and it came to us. Salvation is not humanity working our way up to God. It's God coming down to us. That's happening there on the cross. God resided among his people within the temple, the Holy of Holies. And when that veil was rent, that one piece that was separating the presence of God from people as we know it. When that happened, here, here's what's taking place. At one point, it was only the high priest, one time a year, who was allowed to go behind the curtain. And now that curtain comes down. And here's what that's saying. The presence of God is not only accessible to one. The presence of God is not only accessible to the Jewish people. The presence of God has now been accessible to all. The, the veil has been torn down. That's what he's now done on the cross. Is it any wonder that the Roman soldiers who were standing there, they said, truly this was the Son of God. Faith is better. Here's the next one. Faith in Christ is better because it brings the promise of the Spirit. Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Based on this verse, Jesus' sacrifice meant that the blessing of Abraham, what you see starting with Abraham, when it, when it tells us that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, it's saying that same blessing has now been made accessible to the Gentiles. How? By faith. So what's the blessing that we're talking about here? That we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. If you all want a good time in the Word of God, track the promises to God's people that come with the Spirit of God. I'm going to tell you, it's more than you can say grace over. Jesus bore the curse of sin to bring the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles. If you are not of Jewish descent, that's for you. You're a part of the Gentiles. The cross is God's blessing for us. We're told Genesis 12, 3, all the nations will be blessed in you. So when a person receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, they receive the spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts of sin and reveals Christ, John chapter 16. At salvation, we are born of the Spirit, John 3. We're baptized in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. And we are sealed by the Spirit in Ephesians 1. After salvation, we are to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. Not grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4. Nor quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. As the Spirit of God resides in us through faith, we get a chance to continually enjoy the blessings that come according to the Spirit. 
So now that you see where that's at, now that you see the blessings, the curses are pretty fast after this. Faith in Christ is better. Here's the curse side of the list. Faith is better because to live under the law requires complete obedience to the whole law. It says in verses 10 and 12, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the law to perform them. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. How is a person made right with God? Does the law justify? Does faith justify? Is it a combination of both law and faith that justifies? This, this text is very clear. Verse 11, it says, no one is justified by the law. No one. Now, remember our main question. The question is not, is the law good? The question is not, did God give the law? The question is not, does the law have a purpose? The question is, how is a person justified and made right before God? Paul has emphasized that no one is justified by the law because the law requires perfection and none of us are perfect apart from Christ. The law cannot justify the sinner, Galatians 2.16. Neither can it give him righteousness, Galatians 2.21. The law cannot give the gift of the Spirit, Galatians 3.2. Nor can it guarantee the spiritual inheritance that belongs to the children of God, Galatians 3.18. The law cannot give life, Galatians 3.11. And the law cannot give liberty, Galatians 4.8-10. The inevitable question must be, why would anyone want to go back to the law after they have been reconciled and redeemed by faith? Here's the next one, and we close. Faith in Christ is better because no one is justified by the law. Verse 11. Verse 11, the Apostle Paul quotes another Old Testament passage. He's actually quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That is, the righteous man shall live by faith. So the way of the law and the way of faith are mutually exclusive. Uh, one of the pieces that I try to point out many times as I'm teaching people as far as on studying scripture is what has been referred to as the hermeneutical filter of the cross. Hermeneutical filter of the cross. Here's what that means. When you're trying to understand and interpret a text correctly, how does the cross impact it? There are certain truths from the Old Testament that come all the way up to the cross and they stop at the cross. For example, much of what you see in dietary laws, much of what you see as far as some of the different pieces of the old Mosaic law, it comes to the cross, stops. There's other pieces that come to the cross and they change going through. For example, if you were to look at what Jesus does at the Passover, there were the principles of the Passover. Now he comes through and he said, here's what the bread now means. Here's what the wine now means. And then there's other pieces that come from the Old Testament. They go all the way through the hermeneutical filter of the cross and they are left unchanged on the other side. 
This is one of them. That is, the righteous man shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, that is prior to the cross, goes all the way through on the other side, and it's still the exact same thing. The righteous man shall live by faith. To live by the law is to live by self-effort that leads to failure, condemnation, and death. To live by faith is to respond to God's grace, which leads to justification and eternal life. Faith is better. Faith is better. Now, Paul's argument is intended to drive us into a corner so that we recognize how much we already have in Christ. He wants us to sit with this and to not go back and forth, is it works or is it faith? Is it better with the law? Is it better when we walk by faith? He wants you to settle this in your mind once and for all. Review all the blessings that come with faith, then look through the curses that are associated with the works of the law, and he wants you to walk away saying, faith is better. We are so blessed by what Christ has done for us. Is it any wonder that when we get to the end of Galatians, that the battle cry of Galatians is that it was for freedom that Christ set us free? When a believer understands what Jesus has done, there is freedom that we now find in Christ. Every bit of what I've shared for the last three weeks has been anchored in the gospel. Every bit of it. The gospel is not just the good news that saves. The gospel is the good news that sanctifies. The gospel is not just Christianity 101. It's 201. It's 401. It's the complete degree. The further you dig out the gospel, you find that every one of the truths that we hold dear, they have their meaning and context because we understand what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time tonight. And God, we recognize that we are recipients of much grace, that we have been blessed in a huge way. God, I pray tonight that you would help us so that we do not take your work lightly, that we don't just rush through and say, I understand the gospel, I understand that. Let's move on to something deeper. God, I pray that we go deeper and deeper and deeper into what you have done for us. God, we thank you for all that has taken place. And Lord, we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.